Would you pray with me, please? Be with us this morning, God. Quiet our hearts. May our spirits be still. That we might hear from you. Amen. About three-quarters of the way through her classic, To the Lighthouse, novelist Virginia Woolf captures her character, Lila Briscoe, a landscape painter, facing the toughest decision of all for such a painter, about which Woolf writes, and I quote, Where to begin? That was the question. At what point to make the first mark? For one line placed on the canvas committed her to innumerable risks and to frequent and and irrevocable decisions. Where to begin? That was the question. For where she would begin, Wolf explains, would commit her to everything else. Now, I'm no art historian, and I'm certainly no artist. I know very little about painting, and I know very little about visual perspective. But I do know this. Decisions about foregrounding are everything. Which is to say, an artist has to make a choice concerning what in the painting is going to be the thing that first catches the viewer's eye, the thing that captures the viewer's attention and thereby shapes and contours everything else in the painting. Painting the foreground, landscape painter Larry Whittem writes, can be the trickiest thing of all for a painter, for a mismatched foreground can undermine the whole painting. Hence, Virginia Woolf's Lila Briscoe sitting before her blank canvas and agonizing over where to begin. So I read this recent news story this week and the one that everyone's talking about, and I'm curious as to whether y'all have been as drawn in by it as I have. You know, the one that originally ran, I think, in the Wall Street Journal, but that's been all over Facebook and Twitter and social media this weekend. The one about the brawl that broke out in that Midwestern church over the implications of Jesus' resurrection. Wasn't that nuts? Nuts. For those of you who've somehow missed this story, here are the pertinent details. At a business meeting of this church, it was in Iowa, I think, one of the agenda items centered around an accusation that some members of the church weren't taking Jesus' resurrection seriously enough. Apparently, tensions around the topic had been building for quite some time, and so finally it was brought before the church business meeting, and soon enough, the fellowship hall turned into a screaming match 
with folks who had lived in community with one another for decades, suddenly calling one another every foul name in the book. And then eventually two men got so riled up over the matter that one member actually punched the other in the face. The whole thing then going viral. You've all seen this or read about this, right? Oh, you haven't? Of course you haven't! Because that would never happen! A 21st century church being so passionate about Jesus' resurrection that that's what members are preoccupied with? No! No, no, no. No, what leads to sensational stories like this in the church these days are disagreements over political issues, or cultural issues, or sociological issues. You think I'm kidding? Do a quick Google search when you go home, and you'll find plenty of them. Actual brawls breaking out in churches over politics and social issues. And speaking of brawling churches, let's go back to our dear friends at First Corinthian Church. You know those early church members in Corinth who we've been reading about these past four weeks and reflecting upon. As you'll remember, the Apostle Paul has written them this letter, this letter that we know as 1 Corinthians, in hopes of re-inspiring unity among them. For as of now, they've split off into warring factions. Some of the groups have prioritized their own spirituality. Some of the groups have prioritized their own learnedness. Some of the groups have prioritized works of service. Some of the groups have prioritized sociocultural status. And thus, each group, Paul is at pains to point out in this letter, each group has foregrounded something different. Which is to say, each group has made their own pet preoccupation, whether that be spirituality or learnedness, or works of service, or sociocultural status, or anything. Each group has made their own pet preoccupation the main thing, the central thing that gives shape and form to everything else in their Christian practice. Paul is, in effect, saying that were these Corinthian Christians to all be painters, these different groups have elected to foreground different items. And that consequently their perspectives on everything else within Christian faith have been shaped and contoured by these other items that they have foregrounded. And what has followed from this, Paul is pointing out to them, is that they are all now adrift, utterly divided, each of them working toward different ends, each of them concerned with different things, all of them utterly out of harmony, yet all of them somehow operating in the name of Jesus. 
Well, this whole letter has been one long attempt on Paul's part at restoring these Corinthian Christians to unity. And here in the final chapter of the letter, Paul draws this plea for unity to a close by reminding the Corinthians that the only way for them to regain unity is for them to remember what first drew them together and then to foreground that in their Christian lives. And so just as Virginia Woolf writes that where to begin is the question, and just as painter Larry Whittem writes that a mismatched foreground can undermine the whole painting, so now the Apostle Paul writes, I passed this on to you as of first importance. I passed this on to you as of first importance. You hear that? Paul minces no words. He makes it abundantly clear that this is the part they most need to listen to, that this is the part that undergirds everything else, that this, that what he is about to say, following the colon, that this is the thing as it pertains to their Christian faith that must be foregrounded. That Christ Jesus died and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. I passed on to you this as of first importance. And this is of first importance, he goes on to explain, because, quote, if Christ has not been raised, the rest of your faith is futile. Which is to say for Paul, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not the center, if Jesus' resurrection is not the thing that is foregrounded, if Jesus' resurrection is not the thing that is shaping and contouring everything else, then in the words of Larry Whittem, the whole faith picture has been undermined. There's an essay in this month's Atlantic Magazine that paints a very sobering picture of the Christian church, particularly the Christian church here in America. And in that essay, the writer Peter Weiner says this, and I quote, The Christian church is due a reckoning, for it has been held together by political orientation and sociology more than by common theology." End quote. Now let me read that again because it is both scathing as well as it is sobering. Here it is again. The Christian church is due a reckoning. For it has been held together by political orientation and sociology more than by common theology. 
Now, what does that mean? It means that while churches pay lip service to gathering each Sunday and to living in community with one another in the name of the risen Jesus, what really animates churches today, what really matters, what really enlivens, what really shapes and informs are matters that are utterly untheological. Hence the sheer absurdity of my story about people at a church getting so hot under the collar about whether people are taking Jesus' resurrection seriously enough. We don't really care about that, about Jesus' resurrection. That doesn't get our juices flowing. That doesn't get us worked up. No, we care about what someone thinks about social spending or about gun control or about mask mandates or vaccine requirements or about climate change or energy policy. We care whether someone votes like us or lives like us or falls closely enough within our own socioeconomic class or looks the way we do and dresses much like we ourselves do. The evidence? Look how segregated we still are at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Look how people note a visitor who walks through a church door in attire that identifies them as coming from a different social rank, whether wealthier or poorer. Look how many churches have become enclaves of political groupthink. The Republican Party at prayer over here. The Democratic Party at prayer over there. Increasingly few places where people of different affiliations come together to worship the risen Lord Jesus. Why? Because the risen Lord Jesus is not that which is being foregrounded. Because the risen Lord Jesus is not the thing that really matters. That we so blithely affirm that a man rose from the dead, so blithely affirm that, but then so bellicosely exercise our energies and our passions over other items such as the ones I named. Well, this ought to tell us all we really need to know about what really matters to us in the Christian church. I hand it on to you as of first importance, Paul writes. Of first importance. Where to begin? That which, as Christ followers, ought to shape and contour everything else. For Jesus Christ, Paul writes, is the first fruits of those who have died. 
Meaning that the resurrection is not just some ancillary detail in the story. Meaning that Jesus' resurrection is not just one miracle set alongside other miracles. Meaning that if Jesus rose from the dead, then the very act signifies how we will all one day in him also rise from the dead. And moreover, meaning that if he rose from the dead, then this was God's ultimate yes, God's ultimate affirmation of his entire way of living and being. And finally, meaning that if Jesus rose from the dead, then all Jesus taught about God's coming kingdom is true, and that we who believe it must therefore begin living now in light of and in accordance with that coming reality. So much else follows from this event, Paul is saying. In fact, everything Paul is saying follows from this event. But if... Paul is saying, we don't place this event at the center. If we don't place Jesus' resurrection in the foreground of our Christian lives, then none of that other stuff, Paul is saying, will follow from it, and all will become distorted because we will have, once more in the words of painter Larry Whittem, undermined the whole thing. Let's get back to being Christians. Dear family, let us at Boulevard endeavor to remind others what Christian fellowship is really supposed to be. Let us, unlike the Christian culture around us, be united by our theology and not by our political orientation or other sociological factors. Let us care more about God's coming kingdom than about the lead story on the nightly news. Let us care more about Jesus' resurrection than about what someone shared on Facebook or Twitter this morning. Let us care more about making it more on earth as it is in heaven than about making sure our own personal causes are dominant and triumphant. Let us care more about Christ's cross than our own glory. Let us care more about Christ's life than the one we fantasize about for ourselves. Yes, let us get back to being Christians. And to do that, let us remember where to begin is always the most important question. And thus, my whole sermon today is one long attempt to remind us of that which Paul reminded the Corinthians of then, which is that for Christian faith, there is only one place to begin. 
For I handed on to you as of first importance, Paul writes, that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and was resurrected on the third day. That Jesus Christ was resurrected. Let us foreground that. For foregrounding anything else in the name of Jesus is futile. Yes, let us foreground that. And then let us watch how profoundly it will begin to shape and contour everything else. Amen. And as we together now...